It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who are interested in COVID or monkeypox or even polio. The whole gamut. The whole gamut. <laughs> All so of many the things that we shouldn't have to worry about if you're interested in them here you're in the right place. That's right. My name is Karen Ernst. I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Dr. Nathan Boonstra. I'm a pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital so in Des Moines, ha- Iowa. In Des Moines, Des- Iowa. Here in Des Moines, Iowa. Here at the secondary headquarters of VaxTalk in Des Moines, Iowa. There we go. Nathan, why don't you go ahead and start us off with your Around the Web? All right. Well, we're going to be digging into some pretty meaty topics in the interview. So I have a pretty light around the web. And that is that I always enjoy finding out that a new beloved celebrity is doing some vaccine advocacy. And so, you know, there are a number of fantastic Star Trek actors that are into vaccines and that advocate for vaccines. There are a number of other kind of iconic actors that I like. And whenever I find one that's pro-vaccine, gives me that little dopamine hit. So the one that I found out this week is Punky Brewster, Soleil Moonfry, is doing is doing a meningitis B, that uh, Ask to Be Sure campaign. So um, that is just for anyone who doesn't know about the meningitis B vaccine. So pretty routinely, I believe in most states, uh, you know, a lot of states anyway, it's required to get the the what we call the meningococcal vaccine, which is the ACWY vaccine. That's one that is given usually at age 11 and then at 16. And there's another type of meningitis called meningitis B, and that's a separate vaccine. It cannot be combined with that vaccine. So it's given separately. It has a little bit of a different recommendation profile in that it has kind of that, I forget what they call it now, but kind of the, the more uh, permissive, permissive, permissive rec- recommendation where basically they say, if uh, talk to your doctor and if you and your doctor decide to get it, then go ahead and get it. It's not quite the same as everybody should get this. And that has mostly to do with just cost and cost effectiveness in terms of the number of cases. But you know, it's still one that I recommend to my patients routinely if they don't have a contraindication. So that's what that campaign is about. And to see her there, she has a, a physician friend. I cannot remember if her friend is a pediatrician or not off the top of my head, but they have known each other since they were teens. Uh, and uh, they said they met at a UB40 concert. Like it's it's a very nice 80s blast in the past to watch this video and the stuff where she's done some interviews. And so they kind of are together. You can tell they're friends and they're talking about this very important topic about talking to your doctor about getting the meningitis vaccine for your teen, which usually the first dose is about age 16. So you can go, I know she's on Twitter. I think her handle is moonfry, moon, F-R-Y-E. She's got some stuff on there. So if you want to get that blast from the past, go watch that interview. I think she had, I, I did not see the reboot that she, or the sequel series that she did as an adult Punky Brewster, but I was a big Punky Brewster stan as an 80s kid. So warms my little 80s heart to see that your little nerdy 80s heart well i have bad news for you about that because while you're bringing up punky brewster Mm -hmm. as many folks know voices for vaccines has been expanding and we have new staff members um in over the last six to eight months including our social media guru noah and our public health 
associate, Brianna, I've been throwing out such fabulous pop cultural references and they don't understand them. <laughs> no, they do not have punky power. They don't know Punky Brewster. No. So if I were to say to them, you know, Punky Brewster was always a better show than Blossom. Right. That's some that those are a combination of words. Yeah, they were like th those are all words in English yeah. mostly. Mm -hmm. I say the other day but I said where does where does small wonder rank on the list of <laughs> I, I don't know. I sang to them um, the Knights of the Round Table song from Monty oh, Python. Oh, no. Yeah. I know. That's a shame. And then I, like, crumbled into dust and just mm -hmm. blew away. Um, so <laughs> that that was fun. But I, I, I do have to warn you, as, as we get older, yes. apparently the young, younger people are becoming adults <laughs> and not understanding the things we say. I just, one more thing I said, it was the funniest thing. Uh, we were talking about the vaccines each of us had gotten. I said, of course, you have all gotten your hepatitis B vaccines, but now there's mm -hmm. this universal hepatitis B recommendation for adults. So, you know, people like me probably still need a hepatitis B vaccine. Mm -hmm. And then I said, because in my day, we just got hepatitis and we liked it. And they just looked at me like I was nuts. And I was like, like, like you were just actually doing that just straightforward, not... Right. As, uh, was that Chris Farley? Bit? No, it was. Um, no, so was it Dana Carvey? I am getting old. Yes, that's right. It was Dana Carvey. See, Dana I'm. You know who I am. How I'm feeling like is the, the not yet dead guy from the from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Like I'm not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> and and they're all trying to all the all the younger kids are like, no, you're dead, old man. You're dead. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm fine. I, feel I think happy. I'll go for a walk. <laughs> Yes. So uh, that being said, mine doesn't have any cultural references. Mm -hmm. So all the kids can listen in and enjoy this. We might have to update our cultural references for next month. Okay. I Do we have like a grasp of the demographics of this show? Like, are they getting the references or are they like, we listen to this old people's podcast because we feel a, a dedication to vaccines? But they we need to. What they're what they're saying they need to take out their twitter machines right uh -huh. now and tweet us yeah. yeah at peds geek md and at <laughs> voices number okay. four vaccines mm -hmm. and tell us like yep i'm on board with your cultural references or that's the part i skip cat past you know i say yeah. you know siri skip 14 seconds yeah i know we have a few that get it hi megan thanks for getting our references yeah, exactly. Okay, so mine comes from actually not so much the web, but I subscribe to my local Axios newsletter or Axios, I think is actually how they pronounce it. So um, I don't get any money from Axios. If you have a local one, they're, they're worth subscribing to. It's, you know, your local news and like 15 seconds of reading. But something I didn't realize is that local to me and probably local to you as well, you being all of our friends out into the podcast verse, there is a monkeypox vaccine shortage. Uh -huh. We in the state of Minnesota would need 90,000 monkeypox vaccines. We have 3,000. There is, of course, a public health emergency declared. That does not mean we're locking back down and closing schools. 
It just means that they can do things like say, hey, you got to make more monkeypox vaccine. So that it will be a good thing. There are, you know, 44 cases of monkeypox in Minnesota, which is, you know, less than our last measles outbreak. We had 70 cases, but certainly more than the number of monkeypox cases I want anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, 7,000 cases nationally. And to deal with this, our, our State Department of Health has prioritized vaccines for men who have sex with men and people who have multiple partners have HIV or have HIV. So just putting a pin in that, there are still people who meet some of those criteria and are being turned away and are frustrated by it. And so that's So is, is that difficult. the 90,000 that you mentioned is the people that would meet those criteria? What, mm-hmm. Where is that? Okay. Yep. So yes, they've got this quote from a man named Jack Fisher living in St. Paul who said, everyone's telling you to get vaccinated. Everyone's telling you to do your part, but you really can't do your part. There's no access or resources. Fisher, who is gay, said, public health is failing us again. So that is not great that we are in this place, that we have this terrible opportunity to get something right and we're already getting it wrong again. And this is related to a report that just came out that I will just want to highlight briefly, and I probably should put in the show notes. But the Trust for America's Health just issued a report called The Impact of Chronic Underfunding of America's Public Health System, Trends, Risks, and Recommendations 2022. So there's a good chance that that high level of funding that we got for pandemic emergency response in 2020 and 2021 Uh was actually probably the baseline of what we should have been getting in (laughs) non-emergency times. And we should Uh have gotten even more than that during the emergency response. So I I present that to you, my friends and listeners (laughs) and pop culture reference peers. Yes. That connoisseurs, if you will. Right. That we all have an opportunity right now, speaking of terrible opportunities, we have an opportunity to reach out to our policymakers, to our state legislators, to our, you know, um, U.S. senators and representatives, and to really say, hey, apparently public health always exists. Uh Let's fund it appropriately since it affects all of us. So it's one of those things like education that easy to underfund. Yeah, I, I don't know what to add to that. I, I think it is. I mean, and we knew that pre-pandemic. Like we know that public health has been seriously underfunded for ages, um, or at least in my lifetime. You know, and so just to see that. I mean, even in the pandemic, when that extra funding came in, we all knew that there was more that we should be doing. Like we all knew that this should be a more rapid response, that there should be more going on in both administrations, you know, that have been on during the pandemic, that this is just, I don't, and I don't know how to, I don't know the root of that per se, except just that it's it's almost the same feeling that you get from why people don't think that they need to vaccinate because they feel like the diseases are not around. So they don't feel this urgency to vaccinate. I feel like public health in general is viewed in our country and 
probably others as kind of the same way. Like we're relatively healthy, so eh, we don't need to, you know, invest as much as we should in this when it could pay. I mean, some investments in public health would just pay financial dividends. I mean, they'd be a fantastic investment financially, not to mention for the health of the population because it costs so much to, to handle things when things go bad. So yeah, I, I don't know how to start to fix this. Well, and the problem is too, it's not like we're going to just magically return to normal, right? It's just going to continue breaking down. Well, and we are at like so many of these things are kind of consequences of not being prepared for the pandemic. So we're seeing we're going to talk about polio in just a little bit. And although, you know, there's always there's circumstances around that, you know, having outbreaks of diseases coming to America and, and other countries having outbreaks because of all of these things that happened during COVID, decreased vaccination rates and all these other barriers and and consequences. Like we're going to keep seeing that. Like we don't need to back off on the funding, even if COVID was over, which it's not. <laughs> we really need to continue for the long term here to invest in building the stuff back up because it's not going away. These could just this the, the talk about long COVID. We're gonna we have the global long COVID kind of coming right now because of all of these things that broke down during the worst parts of COVID. Perfectly summarized. I love it. We have global long COVID. Okay, well Speaking of terrible consequences, On that high note. <laughs> we are Talk going about polio. to yeah, we're going to return with Blima Marcus, nurse practitioner extraordinaire and all around wonderful human being. After this break. We are now joined by Blima Marcus, who is a nurse practitioner extraordinaire, all-around wonderful person, and she lives in New York City, which means that we have like a variety of accents on today's show. It will be very fun. <laughs> Welcome, Blima. Thank you. So great to have you. I've long been an admirer of your work, and um, I've also been honored to share the silver screen with you in a documentary that has yet to be released. That's right. I'm the, I, I feel like I'm the honored one over here. You know, you've been doing this work a lot longer than I have, I think. Yeah, so I think she just called me old. <laughs> no. <laughs> Experienced. There we go. Seasoned. Okay. Right. <laughs> But it's it's great to have you. So one of the things that made me think about you is that uh, in addition to COVID, we have other diseases we can talk about right now, which is both terrifying and sort of exciting. Unfortunately, one of the diseases is hitting a community near you, and that is polio has found its way not only to the United States, but it has spread from one person to another within the United States, which is bad news. It was spread to an unvaccinated person from a person who had been vaccinated with the oral polio vaccine, which is a live virus vaccine, and um, can revert to wild polio virus and shed. And so the person who was unvaccinated came in contact with that virus and became sick. So in a nutshell, can you tell us why he wasn't vaccinated? The shortest version is that the Orthodox Jewish community among several vulnerable communities are targets of the larger 
very well-oiled anti-vaccine movement in the United States. And we know the leadership, they kind of swoop down on communities where they feel like they're going to gain a foothold. They've done that to the Somali community in Minnesota. They've done that to the Amish community in Pennsylvania. And they very frequently try to infiltrate the Orthodox Jewish communities in Brooklyn, as well as upstate New York and Rockland County. And as a community member, it's really frustrating because this is a community which I'll throw this out there, although it's neither here nor there, but they actually, the, the Hasidic ultra-Orthodox community actually has the highest rate of altruistic kidney donors, people who will voluntarily donate a kidney to someone they don't know if they're a match. So when I hear that, and my family personally donated four kidneys to people they don't know, my mom, my brother, my brother-in-law, and my sister-in-law. So these, this is um, something I'm very well familiar with. So it's so frustrating to be part of a community that will do something that's incredibly selfless, but then you'll also see this community often get pinpointed for having lower vaccination rates, which we know is a, a communal issue. And people say, well, don't you care about your community? So I, I'm, I'm excited to kind of be able to talk about that a little bit, about why this happens in this community. Maybe what can we do about this? Um, how to un and how to understand this. I had no idea about the kidney donations. And I, I you know, knowing you um, as a human being and seeing your example of the Orthodox Jewish community and also having, honestly, like neighbors on my block who are um, part of a different Orthodox Jewish community, I know how important community is. Uh, right. I, I've seen it firsthand. It's it's really, I mean, it's one of those things where honestly, we all could learn a lesson about community. So what is the disconnect with vaccination? Uh, why is it difficult to buy into community immunity along with this profound and wonderful sense of community? I think the short answer that everyone's probably um, expecting to hear, and I think they're right, is that misinformation and disinformation have been on the rise. And a lot of epidemiologists and scientists have been talking about this for many years, and we've kind of been ho-hum, you know, and then suddenly there's an outbreak here, and then suddenly there's an outbreak there, and suddenly they're coming more closely together, uh, and suddenly they're worse. First it's measles, now it's polio. Over the last few years, we've been battling lower vaccine confidence by trying to uh, reframe information and provide it to people. But I do think that the Orthodox community has a couple of unique characteristics or barriers that maybe make it more difficult to undo years of misinformation and all of the different ways that the information comes at them because they're getting it in their phones, through WhatsApp, through their social media and echo chambers, and then through a homegrown Orthodox Jewish anti-vaccine organization and uh, different individuals who have been coming together. So they're getting so much misinformation, but I don't believe that they have the ability necessarily, the resources or the time or the right people to then say, hey, is this true? So they're getting one-way information that terrifies them but then no good way to verify any of it. Can you talk a little bit about what messages are being used when we have had discussions in the past of this, like targeting by the anti-vax groups of these, of, of different communities, you can see that they're calculating like what message is gonna, 
is going to work with this community? What can they kind of, what kind of thing can start to worry people about vaccines? Can you talk a little bit about what's been done in the Orthodox community in terms of what messages have stuck? Are you referring to messages, anti-vax messages? Yeah, the anti-vax messages that the anti-vax groups use to create the fear. Sure. So there is one um, magazine that's been circulated for many years throughout the community. Uh, It's called the Peach Magazine. Um, If you're familiar with the work my team has done on the Pie Magazine, where we rebut a lot of their claims, then you've heard me talk about it. And one of their lines in their magazine is really striking. It says, you can never unvaccinate, but you can always vaccinate later, which is really what it's about. Because once you're fearful or hesitant, you'd rather put it on the back burner and wait for the right time. You know, if you're not familiar with the ACIP schedule and why you should be vaccinating uh, your two-month-old, your four-month-old, your six-month-old, you don't realize that it's formulated to vaccinate them when they most need that protection. You can tell yourself, well, I can always give them their DTAPs when they're eight. Or I can give them, you know, their flu shots when they're a teenager. You don't realize that when they're an infant, they really are susceptible to the flu and those complications. So holding off on an intervention that they have been conditioned to to, to fear that it can trigger all sorts of harm just seems like the safer step than actively doing something that might cause harm. Especially when, as we know, vaccines have been so successful that people have you know, this, you know, disease amnesia, like, um, what's wrong with the measles? It's routine childhood disease. Speaking of measles. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. You know, you, you've you had measles in the Orthodox community. Um, two years earlier in Minnesota, we had a measles outbreak that was primarily in the Somali community. And the commonality is, of course, a a tight-knit community where misinformation has been spread. One of the things that I think is also a commonality is the existence of really wonderful community health and healthcare providers in both communities. But I'm, you know, I'm not sure if that's the primary access for people in the Orthodox community. It certainly is not for people in the Somali community. Um, So while Somali doctors exist, that's probably not who you're going to end up seeing if you go to a clinic. I'm not sure if that is true in the Orthodox community, but I do know that you you came through and made yourself as available as possible during that measles outbreak. So that's a really long way of winding into the question to ask you to talk a little bit more about what your role was in combating that measles outbreak and how you see your role, um, particularly as a healthcare provider within your own community. So at the time of the measles outbreak, when I realized that people within the community were being bombarded with information that was so easily refuted, if you only know how to do a good search and how to filter that information coming back two skills that a lot of people might not know how to do. I realized that if no one's doing something, the nurses need to do something. And there was a lot of passion and a huge response when I called out and asked for that. And we actually have some physicians on our nurse led organization who are just really passionate about that. And it's funny, I was on a call with one of these physicians a few days ago. And I said, I have to tell you something. I actually think of you as a nurse. 
I think you're more of a nurse than a physician. And I said that because I knew she'd respond well. She's like, oh my God, that is such a great compliment. Whereas so many other people would be offended. And I get that, but she knew what I meant. She's very boots on the ground, meet people where they're at. Not that physicians don't, but I, I do see a little bit of a difference often. And I think it also is personality. You know, um, I think the people that came forward to answer my call for people are those that want to talk directly to those concerned parents. So we're kind of like a self-selected group. And we made ourselves very available. And to be honest, we took some tips from the anti-vaxxers. We saw that they were circulating information through magazines. We wrote a magazine. We saw that they had a phone hotline that doesn't require internet access for those communities who are more insular and avoiding the internet. We created a phone line for that. Um, We started hosting in-person little like intimate groups of, of women that can freely talk. And I felt like they really felt like it was more of a therapy session more than anything. Um, I don't think we changed a lot of minds immediately, but knowing that there are answers and that providers actually care about you, um, I think that went a very long way. And I do know that many people did actually change their mind, get their kids vaccinated, get them at least the MMR at the time during the outbreak. So we knew that we were having an effect in some degree. And I feel like that was how I first came to know your name was through one of those small groups and it being online or recorded or something like that. It, it leads me to ask then, you know, you've been pretty, I think you're becoming and have become very well known in terms of pro-vaccine advocacy. How has the blowback been on that for you? How's the anti-vaccine like kind of response and pushback and those kinds of things been as far as over the last several years? That's a good question. During my work during the measles outbreak, there wasn't a whole lot of blowback. There were a few very vicious people that would say something, but for the most part within my community, people were at that time, weren't very quick to um, directly criticize a woman who's a nurse, who's also an oncology nurse. You know, you have all those features that kind of sometimes insulate you from being targeted as a pro pharma something, but COVID changed that because as I followed COVID and the vaccine development and all of the changing public health guidelines, we all know exactly what happened. Uh, Trust in public health fell, trust in providers fell, but the politicization of everything changed and made people, I think, a lot more frustrated and, and, and willing to voice their frustration, especially in settings that are social media, where you don't actually see or hear the person you're talking to. And it did get pretty vicious at times, even from within my community, which is always a little more hurtful, but it's nothing I can't handle. And there's a block button, there's a mute button. And, you know, the the good thing is I am constantly overwhelmed by more appreciative posts and comments than by the occasional person who's just unleashing their anger over my, you know, pro-vaccine advocacy. So that's always great. And I keep going. It it is great. And actually, that was what I was going to ask you. I'm wondering if you have sort of like a favorite person or favorite thing that happened in your advocacy that really like, I always talk about putting things in your pocket for later, you know, that the the way kids pick up a rock on a walk to the park and, and they just hold on to that rock all day. If there's just sort of that, that little rock of goodness, something that you can think of that happened along the way where you're just like, this was just so lovely that I, I hold on to it. Well, I do get a lot of positive comments and it's funny. Most of them start with, 
I don't agree with most of what you say, but I love a lot of your posts. And that's probably because I'm also very outspoken on political issues. And uh, my community tends to be more conservative. I tend to be more liberal. So I expect that, but I kind of love those posts. It means that they're able to see past beliefs that we disagree with. So all of those posts, honestly, I kind of put in one category that I find personally very heartwarming. You know, we disagree with each other. We still find common value. And I love that. One particular incident that stays with me, and I recently tweeted it, even though this happened during the measles outbreak, was a woman who in New Jersey sat through a four-hour seminar that I gave, which wasn't supposed to be four hours, but the women wouldn't let me and the other nurses leave, and had every fear in the book against vaccinating her children who were all completely unvaccinated. But she texted me the next day to say that she took her four children to give them the MRR. And she texted me to say, thank God, none of them are acting autistic. And it was so meaningful to me, first of all, to know that she trusted my words. You know, I answered a lot of her questions. I didn't answer all of them. There was a lot going on, but she listened, she heard, she felt reassured. But it also was meaningful to me because it reminded me of how she's just a victim of this misinformation. And it, I mean, it also made me angry. I mean, can you really imagine the load of misinformation she must have received to truly be on the alert for autistic signs, whatever those would be immediately after vaccination? That's not even possible. So that's meaningful to me as a reminder of how conversation, humanity, talking can, can go a long way. And again, just, just, Whenever I feel that frustration at having the same conversation a million times, just reminding myself that these are scared parents trying to do the best. And the ones I'm angry at are not these women. It's the leadership that keeps sharing these misinformation and disinformation pieces. So that little anecdote kind of breaks my heart, but I, I, I can't forget that. That's really a fantastic story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. Karen, what else do you have for questions? Or what else should I ask? <laughs> it's funny. I polio, had one. polio, polio, polio. Okay. I think she wants you to ask about polio. We've talked no, about kidding. polio a little. What else should I ask about the polio? There's only the one case of polio. <laughs> only do. the one case, though. I know it's not I mean, only, it's not but like I'm like, measles. what else can I ask about it? You can, yeah, I mean, uh, so. No, the, the truth is, the truth is we don't know a whole lot about um, yeah. what happened there. You know, we don't know who was in the United States with um, the recent oral polio vaccine. We also don't know if there were more people in that chain of transmission. Yeah. I, I know that uh, just yesterday or two days ago, they reported that Rockland had polio in their wastewater as of mm-hmm. early June. That's like two, three weeks before this case. And what worries me is that much of polio is asymptomatic. You know, you really right. only find the ones who get a little sick and present and get tested for polio, which is rare, or the ones that end up paralyzed. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of like sitting on like pins and needles here, hoping we don't hear anything else. Right. Yeah. You're just hoping that it stops there. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I'm thinking about from measles to polio, of course, as you pointed out in between was COVID. And I think COVID changed a lot of what people in public health and medicine can do. And it changed a lot of how the general public views public health that, um, you know, certainly as a whole, we've become a lot more selfish as human beings. But I, I do wonder, you know, there was a time when 
polio was the thing. Like polio is just a plane ride away. And now here it is. Like we told you, we told you polio was just a plane ride away. And, you know, it, it's terrible when someone gets polio. It's terrible and you know it. And we've all like we all Elvis rolled up his his sleeves to get a polio vaccine. Lucy and Desi got on TV and they were like, get your polio vaccines. And we were all in it together. So to go from measles to COVID to polio is feels a little bit like whiplash. But I'm wondering and you know, actually, this is a question for both of you, Nathan. I'm gonna. I'm wondering too. Does polio still have that fear factor in it after we've gone two and a half years through a pandemic? I don't know that. I think it's going to take a little bit of impact in that. Although polio is, when you mention it, it is certainly something that creates the vision of something scary. There's just so little experience with it in that that I don't think any family not that very many families are that worried about it. Like, I think it's difficult to generate much nervousness about polio until I hate to say this, but until we see cases that are, that, that demonstrate how dangerous it is. Uh, And so in the United States, that was just how a lot of people are. If it's not happening in the United States, it's just not being very impactful. So, I mean, it's one of those things where we absolutely hope that it, does not happen that we don't see a single other case but we're nervous about the fact that you know we we know pretty well that we're still at a bit of a vaccine deficit certainly with the mmr and i don't know that we have numbers necessarily on polio vaccines but there's got to be some vaccine deficit over the last couple of years for that as well and so hopefully families recognize the danger and start to get make sure that their families are up to date well, my concern is that immunization rates in school-age children, at least in New York State, are fairly decent, especially since the, uh, uh, Governor Cuomo signed the law, you know, repealing religious exemptions. So for the most part, a lot of vaccination um, uptake has, has been much better. That being said, children that are not yet in school, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, maybe even four-year-olds, um, are not mandated to get their vaccines. And in Rockland County, I was actually sent some information by the director of uh, infection control before this case came out. She reached out because she was concerned only 35% of children aged two to three in Rockland County were completely up to date with their childhood vaccines. Now, in a way that can be a little bit uh, hard to gauge because if someone's missing just one shot or they haven't gotten one booster or something that throws off that whole number. But that being said, the highest percentage in New York State was at 70% of two two to three-year-olds who are completely Mm -hmm. up to date. So they're about half as vaccinated as the best vaccinated county in New York. So being that there is some polio going on in the wastewater, in people who we don't know right now in Rockland, we do have a lot of little children who are vulnerable right now. I do know that many people got scared. This was a case of a 20-year-old male who had just gotten married and within one week had become paralyzed. Um, this happened during his wedding week. So we don't know if a visitor brought it. The family has said that there weren't any international visitors. So we still don't know that. What we do know is that within the first week of his wedding, he became paralyzed. And after his hospitalization, he moved back home with his parents for his rehabilitation period as a new groom. So this shocked a lot of people, not everyone. There are robocalls warning people not to get their polio shots, their polio shots. 
But this did shock and scare a lot of people because it is the worst case scenario for polio other than death, but paralytic polio scares everyone. So I did get a lot of comments from people, from adults saying, how do I know if I've been vaccinated? Who do I contact to get my records? If I went to school as a child, can I assume I've been vaccinated? Uh, No, you can't. Uh, Things were different and we don't know if there were exemptions or fraudulent paperwork, you know, you can never really be sure. And some people have reached out to me saying my kid is completely unvaccinated, but now I'm scared, what should I do? Mm. So I do think that it frightens some people, but there will always be that cohort that say, well, this is the fault of the oral polio virus, which sheds. So we'll always have that cohort. But I, I was glad to see that people took this case seriously. Yeah. And I don't think that a lot of people have that, like are have that information about that case. I think it's right. again, pretty distant in people's minds that, Oh yes, there was, I mean, if they've heard about it at all, I don't know that it's made as much news as it really should be, especially a case that severe. That's awful. And I think pre COVID it would have made a huge yes, splash. Yes. Well, and we had, you know, a couple of cases of measles in Iowa pre COVID and that was a huge, you know, that was in the news, but yeah, I think you're right. I think it's worth bringing up just so in case any listeners are not aware of how this works with the oral polio, um, that so, you know, oral polio is a vaccine that is extremely useful and is used in many countries and was used in the United States. Um, it reduces the spread of polio very rapidly in many ways better than the injectable non-live vaccine that we use in the United States. And so it's, it's very good and it's very important, but it does have that very rare and roughly depends on kind of what study you're looking at, but somewhere in the order of one in a million chance of reverting to a wild type polio and can spray, can then transmit as we talked about earlier. So yes, that is a situation that happened here, but it's worth pointing out a, that that cannot happen from the non-live vaccines that we give routinely in the United States. We do not use oral polio in the United States. And um, also that it's an extremely important vaccine. The oral polio is still very important. I mean, yes, we want to get to the point where we don't have to use it anymore. So we don't have these cases anywhere in the world, but it is extremely effective at reducing the spread of wild polio. So just needed to get that out there in case anybody was unaware of the background on oral polio vaccine. Hey, I still remember the sugar cube at kindergarten roundup. Yeah, I don't remember. In fact, I should, I have my vaccine cards. I should see if I got oral polio. I can't remember. I've I've probably forgotten. Yeah, I can't tell you. I used to know the date. I feel like it was like 1983 is when we switched over. I'll put it in the show notes. I could Google it, but maybe our our listeners will Google it and come yell at us on social media, which is great because now I have Noah managing social media. So that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I think that one of the advantages, though, of, of COVID, at least where I am, is that uh, people understand wastewater now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In fact, I check the wastewater once a week. I mean, I don't like actually physically check the wastewater. <laughs> I don't have the laboratory set up to do that. But I go on the website and see what like the poop people are saying about the wastewater and how much COVID is in it. So knowing that there's polio virus in the wastewater could be very alarming. Um, are there other ways that you think COVID has made not just the Orthodox community, but 
all of us in general more public health aware in a positive sorry i'm trying to figure out your question in a yeah in a way? positive way i know okay. that's tricky because hmm. yeah i mean we're all now public health aware like we know that tony fauci exists right and his like yes. amazing gravelly voice and so, how, is, so how is he you, not a, a movie star okay go ahead. i'm sorry gosh, go ahead. i love him Okay, so when you were saying like, oh, now everyone knows what wastewater is, and I was like thinking in my mind of how many other terms people throw around now, people who were completely uninitiated into, you know, the public health uh, verbiage, right? So I do think that people are, people have learned a lot along with health professionals, you know, kind of been plodding along, listening to more podcasts, participating in maybe, you know, regulatory meetings that are on YouTube. And hopefully, what I hope, hopefully taking away the message that science is earnest and it's a journey, right? And despite the frustration at thinking you know something just to find out a month later, well, actually, nah, that's a good thing. I mean, how worrisome would it be if people didn't keep updating information they were receiving and they just sat on it because they didn't want to have to admit that things changed, right? So I'm really hoping that that's the takeaway for a significant portion of the of the population that's learning and listening along the way. I mean, for me, I I have learned so much. Um, it's it's really for me the only little silver lining is how much I've learned. I mean, I'm starting my MPH this fall, but I feel like I have my online MPH just from having participated in so much. And I wish people would, would, would see how valuable the journey has been and continues to be instead of using it as a point against us. Well, Rochelle Walensky said in July that you'll never get COVID. At the time, you know, people said at the time what was accurate at the time for what was going on at the time. And then circumstances change. And don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, that's just disingenuous. It's not safe for you. It's not safe for your community to choose to discard everything. So these are messages I know all of us are hearing and trying to bat back and forth. But I'm hoping that a significant portion of the population is is learning and, and maybe has an open mind to how science unrolls and unravels. I love that. You know, I, I, I was just thinking to listen, listening to you say that one of my favorite you know, pictures, I think it was actually a painting, is from the days of the smallpox vaccine when everyone thought that, not everyone, anti-vaxxers thought that if you got the, pol or the smallpox vaccine, you would turn into a cow. So it's like got people in various mm -hmm. stages of turning into a cow. You don't know this one. Oh, I will I send not. it. I will send <laughs> oh, it to you. It's really good. Like people have like little like cow ears coming out of their heads and they're growing tails. And they're like, oh, no, I got the smallpox vaccine. So, so 2022 is not the worst year for ridiculous beliefs. Well, I actually, you know, point back. out to people that that might seem ridiculous. But some of the things that people believe still about public health. Yeah. Is kind of equally as ridiculous. Like, hey, let yeah. me just take this horse paste instead of. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we right. keep topping ourselves. We do, we do. But I think it's also one of those things that, you know, I, I, I bring that up a lot to people and then point out like other ridiculous things that a, a large swath of people believe because I think that, you know, infectious disease cases happen in communities. They happen where people live together and interact. And so sometimes, you know, the more homogenous or tight knit a community is, 
you know, an infectious disease can spread quickly within that community. And there can be a lot of stigma around that. And I, I like to remind people that it's like, well, you know, we've all had ridiculous beliefs about public health. We collectively have all had ridiculous beliefs about public health that really like believing that your child would get an would get a vaccine and become autistic isn't super far away from i get a smallpox vaccine and i grow a cow's tail you know because oh there's God. because it's the mechanism I, I i i hear it i hear it yeah so i'm wondering you know do, do, do you think your community is again suffering stigma because of this or do you think that there's some amount of people are still distracted by the idea of um ivermectin and um anti-maskers that that they're not that there isn't this you know stigmatizing of an entire community of people where an infectious disease has spread again i know that the community is feeling very vulnerable right now they've been identified in the media you know as the location where polio has recurred and every article includes the fact that that's where the measles outbreak was very you know centrally located only two years ago so I think people are feeling very vulnerable. Uh, Anti-Semitism in general in New York City has been skyrocketing for the last year. I can't open my Twitter feed without seeing someone post a selfie with his face battered. That is the reality. I don't experience it. I still take the subway. But when I interact in my virtual spheres, I see that it's much more real than I feel in my circles. So this heightens everyone's fear of, um, you know, should they wear their yarmulke in public and be identified as a Jew? I mean, you can tell who's a Jew or not, but, um, you know, people just, they, they, they're taking additional precautions. They feel like there's a target on their back. And many people feel like it's really wrong and inaccurate because most people who vaccinate only know everyone who vaccinates. They're like, we vaccinate. What is going on over here? And then there are those who are kind of deliberately trying to minimize this and say, well, we have great vaccination rates. The, uh, you know, the unvaccinated are a tiny fragment of the community. Now, my approach is not always popular, but I'm kind of very blunt about it. And I say, well, this is the second time in two years a preventable disease has begun in the exact same community. So something is wrong. You know, you can tell me what the school vaccine rates are all day. That doesn't change the fact that there still is a foothold for infectious disease over here. Um, and that has made me pretty unpopular. Uh, last week was a rough day for me on social media. I was called a self-hating Jew and a bigot for being honest about an issue in the community. And I think the reason I was being vocal about it was because I was trying to address leadership that has a voice and asking them to be accountable and say, hey, why don't you issue, you know, like a public health PSA and say, hey, guys, there's a vaccine drive next week. Please go get your polio shots if you haven't done that. Say something, do something. I know I may have a loud voice on Twitter, but I'm still literally just a single nurse. I can't actually coax people en masse to do things. I can continue having one-on-one -on -one conversations. I keep doing that, but I'm limited. And I call out people who I believe have that power if they wanted to use it. And I say, polio is no joke. And someone said, well, it's just one case. And I said, it's one case of a gentleman who cannot walk right now. It is one case which may spread. It is one case which has put a target on every Orthodox Jew's back, whether you live in the area or you don't. This is a problem of PR, which sounds odd, but people are feeling that, that, that shame. And it's a problem of infectious disease. So I've been trying to balance 
my response, which many will say I failed completely by not pointing out how wonderfully everyone vaccinates, but I'm too honest to say just that and leave it at that. Yes, most of us vaccinate. A huge percentage of Orthodox Jewish people vaccinate, but not enough. Not enough. If we're allowing diseases to circulate in our community, whether it's one case or 1,200, it's not enough. And I'm calling out for people to do things about it. And not everyone likes that. Well, we certainly do. We think you use your voice fantastically well. And that bluntness and that willingness to put yourself out there are just incredible additions to the pro-vaccine community. So thank you so much for that. Thanks for saying that. Absolutely. I concur completely. You are such a wonderful voice in um, some very dark times, honestly. It's, It's just wonderful to know you and thank you for all of this hard work that you do. And sometimes when you speak the truth, uh, people don't like it. So, you know, we just, we have to, we have to keep speaking it um, together as much as we can. So Blima, thank you so much for joining us today. It was such a great conversation. I just loved having you here on what I hear is your very favorite podcast. (laughs) I love it. I love your podcast. Thank you. If people wanted to find you, on Twitter or social media and say very nice things to you only, Mm -hmm. where would they locate you? Well, Facebook is where the pleasant people find me and Twitter is where the mad people find me. There's a little trend there, but you can find me on either. Um, But you will find me on like my nickname name, which is not Blima, but it's Blimi. So you'll find me at B-L-I-M-I, last name Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S on either platform. And thank you to all of you who are listening today for joining us. I really do appreciate each and every one of you. Please share this episode with somebody who might not realize all of these varying public health crises going on at the same time and bring them into the conversation. Until then. Oh, go ahead. My call for action is to, if you have any questions at all about whether or not you kept your kids up to date with vaccines during the last two years, please just call up your child's doctor's office and just check in with their staff and they'll let you know. Please do that. Right. And if it's because you lost insurance, your children qualify for the Mm -hmm. vaccines for children program. So still call. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Nathan. That was great. My name is Karen Ernst. I am the director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonster, and I'm just this guy, you know? <laughs> All right. Are we ending with that? We're gonna, yeah, no. I'm going to tag me on Twitter if you've got that reference. Great. Bye. <laughs> yeah, pedsgeekmd.com. No, no pedsgeek. Yeah, at peds. It's Twitter, Karen. <laughs> yeah, ped, yeah, Twitter. <laughs> hashtag, um, hey, Nathan. Dot com, which D- stands for geek. commercial dot. Don't write out dot D-O-T. You put Twitter, the period, like the dot, and then com, (laughs) C-O-M, short for commercial, but don't write all commercials. Just Twitter, the period, com, and then the slashy, and then (laughs) it's geek empty. All right. Okay, bye. And scene. (laughs) To learn more.